Chapter forty three of Delorme by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty three. Welcome, said de Retz as I entered. Most welcome. I am just about to proceed on an expedition wherein your assistance may be necessary. Will you accompany me? Anywhere you please, I replied, provided I be back by dusk. Long before that, answered de Retz. I am going to take you to the Bastille. My surprise made the abbé explain himself. You must know, said he, that there is no actual impossibility of our gaining the Bastille itself for Monsieur le Comte de Soissons, in case his first battle should be so successful as to give fair promise for an ultimate event. You like frankness, he continued, suddenly interrupting what he was saying, and I perceive you are already beginning to look surprised that I, who have hitherto shown no great confidence in your discretion, should now let you into the most dangerous secrets of this enterprise. I will frankly tell you why I do so. It is because I need someone to assist me, and because I judge it more dangerous to risk a secret with two than to confide it all to one, even should he not be very discreet. But I am also beginning to think more highly of your discretion. It is so bad a plan to let our first impressions become our lords, that I make a point of changing my opinion of a man as often as I can find the least opportunity. It was very difficult to know, on all occasions, whether Monsieur de Retz's frankness was spontaneous or assumed. Whichever it was, it always flowed with a view to policy, and I found that the best way of dealing with him was at first but to give to whatever he advanced that sort of negative credence, which left the mind free to act as circumstances should afterwards confirm or shake its belief. In the present case I merely thanked him for his improved opinion of me, and begged him to proceed, which he did accordingly. The Bastille, he said, serves Monsieur le Cardinal de Richelieu for many purposes, but its great utility is that it disposes of all his enemies one way or another. Those he hates, those he fears, find there a grave or a prison according to the degree of his charitable sentiments towards them. There are, however, many persons whom he fears too much to leave at liberty, yet not enough to condemn them to the rack, the block, or the dungeon. These persons are shut up in one prison or another through the kingdom, and on their first arrest are treated with some severity, but gradually, as they become regular tenants of the place, the measures against them are relaxed, and they have, at length, as much liberty as they would have in their own house, with the door shut. There are at present four men within the walls of the Bastille, who, having been there for years, are scarcely more watched than the governor himself. The Duc de Vitry, the Count de Cramal, Marshal Bassompierre, and the Marquis du Fargui. All these are known to me, and Monsieur du Fargui is my uncle, so that I am very sure of the game that I am playing. The interior discipline of the prison is at present more than ever relaxed under the present governor, Monsieur de Tromblay, and his politeness towards his prisoners is such that one or other of the four gentlemen I have named have every day one of their friends to dine with them, which affords them the greatest consolation under their imprisonment. I have often thus visited the prison, and about ten days ago, while dining with my uncle, I had the opportunity of hinting to the Count de Cramal, who is the cleverest man of the party, the designs of Monsieur le Comte, 
and at the same time proposed to him a plan for rendering ourselves masters of the Bastille. He has promised me an answer to-day, when I have engaged myself to dine with Monsieur de Bassompierre, and the only difficulty is to obtain an opportunity of speaking in private. You doubtless have experienced how troublesome it is, sometimes to win a secret moment, even in a saloon. Judge, therefore, whether it is easy in a prison. You must lend your aid, and engage old du Tremblay in conversation, while I make the best use of the time you gain for me. I now very well perceived that de Retz had in a manner been forced to explain himself to me, as there was no other person in Paris acquainted with the designs of the Count de Soissons. I therefore gave him full credit for sincerity, and agreed to do my best to gain him the opportunity desired. By the time this explanation was given, it approached very near to one of the clock, and, not to commit such a rudeness as to keep waiting for their dinner a party of prisoners, whose principal earthly amusement must have been to eat, we set out immediately on foot, it being required that we should give as little éclat to our visits to the Bastille as possible. A sort of mixed government then existed within the walls of the prison, being garrisoned with troops as a fortress, and also very well supplied with jailers and turnkeys, to fit it for its principal capacity. Thus, though the gate was opened to us by an unarmed porter, a sentinel, iron to the teeth, presented himself in the inner court, and another at every ten steps. However, having, like the knights of the old romances, vanquished all perils of the way, we at length entered into the penetralia, and were ushered into the presence of the governor. Monsieur du Tremblay, who died about six months afterwards, was too good a man for his situation. His reception of us was as kind as if we had been guests of his own, and the prisoners whom we went to see appeared to form but a part of his own family. I was now introduced in form to the friends of Monsieur de Retz. They were all old men, and had, in truth, nothing remarkable in their appearance. Monsieur de Vitry, celebrated in history as the man who, at the command of Louis the Thirteenth, shot the Maréchal d'Ancre on the very steps of the Louvre, was the only one whose countenance promised anything like vigour. But it was not to him that de Retz had addressed himself in his present negotiation, but to Monsieur de Clamay, whose face, at all events, did not prepossess one in favour of his intellect. We dined, and the governor, seeing me dressed in mourning, and as gloomy in my deportment as my garments, luckily applied himself to console me, with so much application that Monsieur de Cramal had his opportunity of speaking a few words to de Retz in private, even during dinner, while Monsieur de Tremblay endeavoured to solace with me with Allos à la Martinette, and to drive out the demon sorrow with Pied de Cochon à la Sainte Menehould. During the meal, de Retz took occasion to vaunt my skill at all games of cards, though, heaven knows, he could not tell when he did so whether I could distinguish Basset from Lansquenet. But taking this for a hint, when the old governor asked me after dinner to make one of three at Ombre, I did not refuse, and as soon as we were seated, the abbé, with Monsieur de Cramail, went out to walk upon the terrace, while Monsieur de Vitry and du Farquy remained to look upon our game. Thinking to engage the governor to go on with me, I let him win a few pieces, though he played execrably ill. 
but i thus fell into the common mistake of being too shrewd for my own purpose had i judged sanely of human nature i should have won his money for he would have gone on to a certainty to win it back as it was after gaining a few crowns he resigned the cards and asked if i would join the gentleman on the terrace there was no way of detaining him and therefore after making what diversion i could i followed to the spot where de retz and monsieur de Cramail were enjoying an unobserved tete-a-tete as we came up i saw that the latter had a paper in his hand which he was evidently about to give to de retz the moment however we appeared on the terrace he paused and withdrew it the paper i knew might be of consequence but how to take off the eyes of the governor was the question i praised the view hoping he would turn to look in his astonishment for nothing was to be seen but the smoky chimneys of the faubourg st antoine but the governor only replied yes very fine and walked on i now saw that i must hazard a bold stroke and quietly insinuating the point of my sword between the governor's legs which was the more easy as he somewhat waddled in his walk i slipped the buckle of my belt the sword fell and the governor over it i tumbled over him and while the paper was given received and concealed i picked him up begged his pardon and brushed the dust off his coat after which we passed a quarter of an hour in mutually bowing and making excuses de retz then took leave and as soon as we were once more in the street i left him to peruse the paper he had received at leisure and hurried away to my lodging in the rue des prets saint paul to prepare for the reception of my archer and his recruits in going to the bastille with de retz i fancied that i saw a man suddenly turn round and follow us and on my return i evidently perceived that i was watched whatever was the object it did not at all suit me that any one should spy my actions and therefore after various hair-like doublings i turned down the rue des minimes got into the place royale and gliding under the dark side of the arcades made my escape by the other end and gradually worked my way up to my lodging my good landlady was somewhat surprised to see me but i found my apartments prepared and in order and sending for a couple of flagons of good burgundy i waited the arrival of my new attendants i found that punctuality was amongst their list of qualifications for no sooner did twilight fall than the archer made his appearance followed by two very respectable-looking personages whom he introduced to me severally as combalet de carignan and jacques moncoeur the first was a tall well-dressed gallant ruffling gaily with feathers and ribbons in profusion a steady nonchalant daring eye and a leg and arm like a hercules the face of the second jacques moncoeur was not unknown to me and memory hastily running back through the past found and brought before me in a minute the figure of one of those worthy sergeants who had come to examine my valise on my first arrival at paris he was the one who had shown some valour and had ventured a pass or two with me after his companion had been ejected by the window i instantly claimed acquaintance with him which he as readily admitted saying with a grin that the circumstances under which we had last met would he hoped be quite sufficient to establish his character in my opinion and show that he was well fitted for my service whatever reply he expected i answered in the affirmative and combalet de carignan finding that his friend's acquaintance with me 
turned out advantageously, would fain have proved himself an old friend of mine also. Jacques Mocqueur, however, cut him short, exclaiming, "'No, no, you were not of the party, and you just as much remember Monsieur's face as I do the high priest of the Jews.' "'Why, I have done so many sweet youths lately,' replied the other, "'and broken so many heads, that I grow a strange confounder of faces.' "'Ay, if you had been with us that day,' answered Jacques Mocqueur, "'you would have had your own head broken. "'Why, Monsieur made short work with us. "'He pitched Captain Von Crack out of the window like an empty oyster-shell, "'and pricked me a hole in my shoulder before either of us knew on what ground we were standing. "'And he made me a low bow to send his compliment home up to the hilt. "'To proceed to business,' said I after I had invited my companions to taste the contents of the flagons, which they did with truly generous rivalry. Let me hear what wages you two gentlemen require for entering into my service. That depends upon two things, replied Combelet de Carignan. What sort of service your lordship demands, and what power you have to protect us in executing it. Simple brawling for you, cheating, pimping, lying, swearing, thrashing, or being thrashed, fighting on your part steel to steel and any other thing in the way of reason we are ready to undertake but murder assassination and highway robbery are out of our way of business i have been employed in the service of the state and come of a good family am well born and well educated and would rather starve than do anything mean or dishonourable nothing of the kind shall be demanded of you replied i and the worst you shall risk in my service shall be hard blows. That is nothing, replied Jacques Moncoeur. Combalet does not fear even a little hanging, but he dreads having a hotter place in the other world than his friends and companions. But for general service, such as your lordship demands, we cannot have less than sixty crowns a month each. To this I made no opposition, and a written agreement was drawn out between us in the following authentic form we combelet de carignan and jacques de Moncoeur, hereby take service with monsieur le comte de l'orme promising to serve him faithfully in all his commands provided they not be such as may put us in danger of the great carving-knife the road to heaven or the round bedstead we declare his enemies our enemies and his friends our friends all for the consideration of sixty crowns per month to be paid to each of us by the said count de l'orme together with his aid and protection in all cases of danger and difficulty as well as food and maintenance in health and surgical assistance in case of our becoming either sick or wounded in his service in addition to the above i stipulated that my two new retainers were to abandon all other business than mine and though they might lie as much as they pleased to any one else that they should uniformly tell me the truth at this last proposal jacques Moncoeur burst into a fit of laughter and combalet de carignan hesitated and stammered most desperately you must know monsieur said he at length that my friend jacques and i have established a high character amongst our brethren by never promising anything without performing it now everything we say we will do for your lordship be sure that it shall be done even to our own detriment but as to telling you the truth i can't undertake it i never told the truth in my life except in regard to promises and i own i should not know how to begin it is my infirmity lying and i cannot get over it 
Jacques Mocqueur can tell you the truth. Oh, I have known him tell the truth very often. But really, monsieur, you must excuse me. Well then, monsieur Combalet, said I, your friend Jacques shall tell me the truth, and when you lie to me, he shall correct you, and I will set it down to your infirmity. Agreed, monsieur, agreed, replied the other. I am quite willing that you should know the truth. I do not lie to deceive. It proceeds solely for an exuberant and poetical imagination. But allow me to request one thing, which is, that you would call me de Carignan. I am somewhat tenacious in regard to my family, for you must know that I am descended from the illustrious house of Carignan of— The infirmity, the infirmity, exclaimed Jacques Moncoeur. His mother was a lady of pleasure in the Rue des Hurleurs, and his father was a footman. The bravo turned with a furious air upon his companion, but Jacques Mocqueur only laughed and assured me that what he said was true. All preliminaries were now definitely settled, and giving the archer another piece of gold, I hinted to him that he might leave me alone with my new attendants. This was no sooner done than I proceeded to my more immediate object. "'You think, doubtless, my men,' said I, "'that I am about to employ you, as you have hitherto been employed, in any of those little services which require men devoid of prejudice and not overburdened with morality. But you are mistaken. In the enterprise for which I destine you, you will stand side by side with the best and noblest of the land. If we fail, we will all lay our bones together. If we succeed, your reward is sure, and a nobler career is open to you than that which you have hitherto followed.' my two recruits looked at each other in some surprise he means buccaneering said combalet to his companion fine no replied jacques moncoeur after a moment's thought he means a conspiracy because he talks about it being a nobler career folks always call their conspiracies noble though lawyers call it treason however monsieur if it is anything against our late lord and master his most devilish eminence of richelieu we are your men for we both owe him a deep grudge, and we make it a point of honour to pay our debts. But who are we to fight for, and who against? Hold, hold, my friend, replied I. You are running forward somewhat too fast. Remember that you are speaking to your lord, whom you have bound yourself to serve, and you must obey his commands without inquiring why or wherefore. Aye, answered Combalet, so long as they do not make us put our heads under the great carving-knife, but when your lordship talks about conspiracies who talks about conspiracies knave cried i finding that my horses were showing signs of restiveness who talks of conspiracies you have nothing to do but receive my commands and when i propose anything to you that brings you within the danger of the law then make your objection but to the point proceeded i i am told and indeed know from the best authority that all the persons exercising your honourable profession in any of its branches form as it were a sort of club or society which is governed by its own laws to a certain degree and i am moreover informed that you have a certain place of meeting where the elders of your body assemble called swash castle or chateau escroque where you have a chief magistrate named king of the huns is not this the fact i had gained my information from various sources but greatly from my little attendant Achilles, who had an especial talent for finding out things concealed. 
my knowledge of their secrets however had a great effect upon my two attendants who began to think i believe that either as a professor or an amateur i had at some former time exercised their honourable trade myself there is no denying it sir replied jacques moncur at length we are a regular corporation so much i may say for you know it already but ask me no farther for we are bound by something tighter than an oath not to reveal the mysteries of our craft i am going to ask you no question replied i firmly but i am going to command you to take me to your rendezvous or swash castle and introduce me to your worthy prince the king of the huns my two respectable followers gazed in each other's eyes with so much wonder and amazement that i saw i had made a very unusual request but i was resolved to carry my point and accordingly added after waiting a few moments for an answer why don't you reply do not waste your time in staring one at the other for i am determined to go and nothing shall prevent me samson was a strong man monsieur replied jacques shaking his head but he could not drink out of an empty pitcher your lordship would find it a difficult matter to accomplish your object by yourself and though here we stand willing according to our agreement to serve you to the best of our power yet i do not believe that we can do what you require mark me master jacques mock replied i my determination is taken i came to paris for the express purpose of treating with your king of the huns on matters of deep importance and back i will not go without having fulfilled my mission if therefore you and your companion can gain me admittance into your chateau d'escroc by to-morrow night ten pieces of gold each shall be your reward if not i must find other means for my purpose and take care that you put no trick upon me for be sure that i will find a time to break every bone in your skin if you do you know i am a man to keep my word i do i do monsieur replied jacques moqueur it cost me a yard and a half of diachelon the last bout i had with you and i would not wish to try it again all i can say is that we will do our best to gain a royal ordinance for your lordship's admittance but if you really have made up your mind to go knowing anything of what you undertake you must have a stout heart of your own that is all that i can say i have only farther to assure your lordship that the more information you can give us of your purpose the more likely we are to succeed you may tell his majesty of the huns replied i that i come to him as an ambassador from one prince to treat with another that he may find his own advantage in seeing me for that i shall be contented to cast ten golden pieces into his royal treasury as an earnest of future offerings on my first visit and that he need not be in the least fear as i come unattended and quite willing to submit to any precautions he may judge necessary after a little reflection my two attendants did not seem to think my enterprise quite so impracticable as they had at first imagined they banded the pros and cons however some time between them in a jargon which to me was very nearly unintelligible and at last once more assuring me that they would do their best they left me after having received a piece or two to stimulate their exertions before i let them depart i also took care to enforce the necessity of dispatch and insisted upon it that a definitive answer should be given me by dusk the day after as soon as messieurs combelet de carignan and jacques moncoeur were gone 
my own steps were turned towards the Hôtel de Soissons, and revolving in my own mind the events of the day, I walked on, like most young diplomatists, perfectly self-satisfied with the first steps of my negotiation, even before I showed the least probability of ultimate success. End of chapter 43